0: Welcome to Season 2 of Open Deeply, devoted to exploring the relationships society pushes into the shadows. Kinky love, non-monogamous love, neurodiverse love, and more. Jack Cornfield says to open deeply requires tremendous courage, a warrior spirit, and unconventional love takes just that. So, join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron
1: and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Now, Season 2 of Open Deeply is an exploration of love and connection in its many forms. And for this episode, we're continuing our series on consensual non-monogamy with the amazing insight and knowledge of my co-host, Kate Lurie. <laughs> and, and if y'all are, I know you're like, well, where did this amazing consensual non-monogamy insight and knowledge come from? And let me tell you really quickly about Kate. Kate's a sex positive licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in non-monogamy and kink and LGBTQ and sex worker communities. Also certified sex educator, an EMDR certified therapist with additional training in the trauma resiliency model, Kate's been all over. What, you've been in BuzzFeed, on podcasts, Ms. Magazine. That's a new one. I'm excited. Yeah, that was exciting. Yes, all sorts of places. And Kate's latest adventure, Kate is the author of the newly released book, Open Deeply, a guide to building conscious, compassionate, open relationships. And Kate, between last episode and this episode, your book has been released. Congratulations! Yay! Yay! And the crowd cheers! Yeah, it's very exciting. Wait, hold on, the crowd cheers. Good job, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, with the magic of editing and production and the future who knows like all the exciting things you'll be doing the day that this episode drops but I'm so excited for you and proud of you and your book is amazing and thank you all the congratulations
2: yeah and I'm just happy I had no idea if anyone would read my book or not and the fact that it's like skyrocketing right now it's just my mind is blown I'm still kind of in awe and don't know what to do don't know (laughs) what to make of it, but it's really super exciting and yeah, I'm excited to talk more about it. Oh, yay.
1: So yeah, we've been doing this series. The last episode that we had prior to this one, we got into the foundations of consensual non-monogamy. We laid down our base and now this episode, we're going to deep dive into compassion and it's in the title of your book right conscious compassionate open relationships Mm -hmm. and I think that when we all hear the word compassion we're like well of course compassion oh yeah but do we really know what that means and I started thinking about it and I was like what is the definition of compassion especially in this context so Kate what is it do we know Yeah, actually, (laughs) if you
2: Google the word compassion, you'll pull up a lot of different definitions. So the way I describe it, if you were to Google it, you might see some definitions that are different than what I'm going to say. One difference between, say, empathy and compassion is that actually studies show that compassion is more effective in a lot of ways. So, And I'm going to kind of define compassion in juxtaposition- to empathy like showing the difference between empathy and compassion so the thing is about empathy it's great to have empathy but when when you have empathy for another person sometimes you take on so much that you end up not being able to help anyone like empathy can steamroll you over whereas when you experience compassion sometimes you may not feel all the emotions but you see that there is a need that someone has a need and it's more action oriented than empathy is and so a lot of times we can feel compassion for another person and end up being able to help them way more if we're just coming from a compassionate place than if we were coming from an empathetic place where we're just taking on all of their stuff so much that we're flattened by it. Mm, Okay. You can google this like you can google why is compassion more effective than empathy and you'll you'll very easily find articles that talk about studies that delineate the two and and why compassion actually works a lot better and if you are curious about uh, self-compassion A great book on the topic is Self-Compassion by Kristin Neff. That's just a side note. So when I think about, I wanted to talk about both self-compassion today and then compassion for others within non-monogamy. And one thing that I became a little, I'm always surprised at how little self-compassion people have for themselves.
1: Oh, it's so true. I will treat a stranger on the street like I will be so compassionate and so understanding. And if it's me, I did a fraction of I beat myself up. Right. Yeah. I have no compassion for myself.
2: Yeah. And within non-monogamy, a lot of times... People have all these shoulds. I, I This is how I should show up within non-monogamy. This is how I should relate to all my other partners. And they end up, their lack of compassion for themselves gets coupled with shame spirals. So they're in a shame spiral while they're concurrently having no compassion for themselves. And it really just doesn't serve anybody. So... And when you think about like why wouldn't someone have self-compassion for themselves just in the grander scheme of things certainly it's going to have different cultural influences are going to play a part your sense of self is going to play a part how your family treated you when you're a kid like all these things influence whether you have self-compassion for yourself I mean certainly there are some families that like some overachiever families that they're like, if you're not miserable, you're not working hard enough, that kind of thing. Anyway, so within non-monogamy, one of the first things that I would say is that compassion is more, even more important than communication skills. You, you hear from everyone, oh, well, the most important thing is having good communication skills. And all you have to do is watch two lawyers that are dating each other in a couple's therapy session, which I have witnessed, um,
1: <laughs> to see... I object. I can just, like, I'm just imagining. I object.
2: Did they slip and call? But your honor, I mean... I mean well, therapy. I mean, you can imagine, right? <laughs> they, I mean, these are two stellar communicators, right? This is what they do for a living. And yet, a lot of times, the compassion is not there for each other. And so, it ends up being a bit of a crash and burn. And this is why compassion is even more important than communication skills. Is
1: compassion a part of the like the receiving and
2: listening end of communication? To me, compassion is a form of love. To me it's love in action. I think to a degree you can have a compassionate or, you know, sometimes, an, so when I say compassion in, in action, it may be your internal dialogue. It may not be something action steps that other people can see, but it's kind of how your love for yourself or others plays out rather than just a feeling, if that makes sense. That's how I think about, about it. Ah, so like I, yes. a lot of times I'll say compassion in okay. action. And to me, when I say that, that's very redundant, but it drives the point home. So, a lot of times in non-monogamous relationships, or or just in any relationship, but today we're going to be talking about non-monogamy, there isn't a lot of compassion. So, a lot of times I'll see two people where they're both screaming for compassion, but not giving it to each other. They're not giving it for different reasons, but let's start with self-compassion. So, I think one of the first steps is to have compassionate self-talk, and how do we do
1: that? I've been trying to answer that question for 50 years. Please tell me the secret.
2: Well, I would think, you know, when you think about that negative voice, that's always criticizing you and saying you're not doing enough mm-hmm. or you're not doing it right. I would think about that voice as kind of like a toxic friend or abusive parent that's internalized. And that not-so-good parent or that toxic friend might mean well, a lot of times they, they might think, well, if I don't beat, if the toxic friend doesn't beat you up emotionally, then you'll be lazy or you'll be this or you'll be that. And that's kind of bullshit. So I think just like with meditation, they talk about with meditation, watching your distracting thoughts going by like a cloud and then just bringing your attention back to your mantra or whatever it is. Similarly, when You have that toxic friend show up, you just watch them and then go back to asking yourself, what would a benevolent mother say or or a benevolent parent? What would a benevolent friend say to me regarding this situation? And start literally building up that benevolent friend, almost like a character in a D&D game or something like that, you know, like build them up until you, yeah. you, it's almost like a personality in your head, just like that critical voice is almost like a personality in your head. And just start replacing it, you know, it's like you watch the critical voice, just shift your gaze over to the b- benevolent friend. What do they have to say? And over time, the benevolent friend will become the default. At first, it'll be work, but eventually that's how your brain will function. More from the standpoint of having a benevolent friend guiding you. When I talk to people like about why they don't want to let go of the critical voice, they'll say things like, well, if I let go of the critical voice, then, then I'll become lazy, or then I'll, I won't behave well. I need the critical voice. It's almost like they believe that having a a bully in their life serves them in some way.
1: Right. And I mean, for a lot of us, that was probably the case in real life at some point, you know, whether it was a toxic parent growing up or so that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I know for me, Like I said, I've struggled with this. I do not have this down. So, But when I've tried a couple times, you know. Wait, am I doing negative self-talk right now? Am I poo-pooing myself? I think you're just telling us your experience. You're really good at itself. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But if I sometimes put myself in the position of like... If I were somebody else and I was talking to that somebody else, because like I said, you know, I'm a lot more compassionate with other people and I don't allow myself that same grace. So like if I imagine whatever I'm going through or what I'm thinking or whatever, if that's somebody else and I was talking to them. What would I say? And of course, I wouldn't be like you're awful, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So, and that kind of snaps me out of it. Like, okay, you're really, you know, dogging on yourself right now. Stop it.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's another way to do it. Or I've talked to some clients where I literally have them imagine that the benevolent parent is talking to their inner child and to imagine themselves Mm. when they're little. And I and some clients can do that. Other clients have such a poor sense of self that or such a low positive affect tolerance related to receiving love and kindness that they can't do that so i'll have them imagine a different child (laughs) like imagine a different child as a start point and so they'll start there imagining the benevolent parent is talking to that to another child with the same emotion so they're kind of watching it like a movie in their head and then eventually they can imagine it being themselves but they have to have a start point that fits with their positive affect tolerance of what they can tolerate. Mm. And
1: really quickly, I know we've talked a lot about affect tolerance, but for like the listeners who are maybe just joining us, can you just catch us up on what positive affect tolerance is?
2: It's something that I talk about in the book, a couple of places. It's something I talk about all the time, almost every day. So in, in society, we have a tendency to understand, and value someone who can tolerate the negative stuff. I mean, all you have to do is think about our action heroes, you know? I mean, when we watched some action star, like, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, absorbed a million bullets and still get up and keep going. We go, wow, you're amazing. But, and we understand that tolerating negative things is difficult, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't occur to us that actually tolerating the yumminess of life is super hard for a lot of people, especially if you have a hard backstory.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
2: leaning into joy is one of the most vulnerable things you can do if every time you opened up your heart to joy or anything of that nature, you got injured as a child. Or you got any time you opened your heart to love someone betrayed you or manipulated you or took advantage of you, mm-hmm. right? And so for those who, the harder a person's backstory is, the the higher the, the chance that their positive affect tolerance might be low. And oh, by the way, it's not across the board. So you might have high positive affect tolerance in a particular area, like your ability to do your profession well, but you may not be able to receive a compliment without it feeling like an itchy sweater that you want to throw across the room it's like you just read my mind and my life yes thank you that is exactly (laughs) yes (laughs) right right but you can build your positive affect tolerance like a muscle in the gym and so both of these things compassionate self-talk and positive affect tolerance are really key components in the need to be there in order to have your non-monogamous journey go well. Because if you're always beating yourself up, you probably are not telling your partner your needs because you already think that you're probably, you're probably calling yourself needy or you're already beating yourself up for just basic things like having needs within non-monogamy. So you're probably, so it may be that your yes isn't a true yes. It may be you're not voicing your needs. It may be that you're Partners think that you're okay when you're not because you don't want to burden them with what you're truly feeling. Like there's all kinds of things that over time can mount up and cause a lot of accumulatively, it can lead to a person having just kind of generalized anxiety or generalized anger or just like a generalized feeling where they're like, why am I feeling like this all the time? And it's from all this stuff mounting up, all the things that they didn't say because they didn't love themselves enough and didn't have enough self-compassion to Uh verbalize what they needed to verbalize and to take care of themselves within non-monogamy in the way that they wanted to. And then going to positive affect tolerance, if you don't have a lot of tolerance for receiving love, then think about it. If a compliment is an itchy sweater, then how are you going to tolerate being loved well by one person, let alone several people? Oh, yeah. And if if you have a hard time accepting love from others, then there's a higher chance that when you sense that love coming your way and somebody gets extra sweet with you or what have you, or you can tell that the, the relationship has regressed to a certain place of yummy lovey doveyness, you may pull away, you may sabotage the relationship, you may break a key relationship agreement unconsciously, not like an evil villain, but like unconsciously in order initially a fight will ensue probably right but the second thing that happens afterwards is that it reduces the intimacy in the relationship and it may reduce the intimacy to a level that you're more comfortable with given that you don't have the positive affect tolerance for the greater love oh yeah
1: okay and i'm sure every listener like we're listening to this analyzing our Own lives, I am. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense.
2: damn okay (laughs) right but but we can build i mean for me you know i think i've given you this example when i've gone to agape spiritual center you know with michael beckwith and all of a sudden the whole congregation is turning around and looking at me and saying a whole bunch of sweet things to me like i'll cry every time in a good way because i'm not used to a whole bunch of strangers like growing up in in the south where i was a weirdo there i was used to if a whole group was turning around and talking to me, it wasn't good, right? And so, (laughs) it it was to say, like, to call me a Yankee or to slut-shame me or something like that. And so, to go into a space and have everyone, all these strangers turning around and giving me love, like, pushes my positive affect button. And so, I purposely go to Agape, Oh well, back before the pandemic, now you can't go, but I used to go just to lean into that and build up my muscle, regarding my positive affect specific to that. Mm. Does that make sense? It
1: totally makes sense. Yeah. And I'm thinking how great that would be and how terrifying that would be all at the same time.
2: Right. Yeah. But that yeah. that's the thing. It's like when you find that thing that makes you kind of like cry in a good way or, or you know, like you feel the overwhelm, you feel yourself looking away or... It's like somebody might be sweet to you and all of a sudden you're like, "Ah, oh, I have to go to the bathroom or would you like a drink or somehow you're breaking the eye contact because it's too much for you because you're positive. Yeah. You know, it's like you can slowly choose not to look away. And that's easier said than done because sometimes we look away about as fast as someone does when somebody jumps out behind a door and goes, boo, and you scream, right? It almost <laughs> feels like a sympathetic nervous system response in the, in the sense that it can be that fast where your body reacts before you even told it to.
1: Right, right. I feel like like now I want to work on this and I feel like when I do get to that stage of being able to tolerate it, I'll be embracing like my inner sally field like they like me, they really
2: <laughs> like me. And, you know staying up on stage and not running away <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so it can be goal. hard and i think another thing that's hard about it is when you continue to keep that eye contact i think there's also the fear of what might happen next not just that the love will deepen but also you might burst into tears and that and you might have that fear of the person witnessing you crying thinking what is wrong with this woman
1: yeah yeah right I also think like looking at some of my own experiences, whether it's thinking of abusive relationships where it's like love bombing and happy things would then be followed. Like if something good happens, that means something bad is going to happen. Right. Or even, you know, if you're somebody who's marginalized, you know, you're dealing with other systemic things in your life where you're always getting like kicked in the face every time there's a bright spot. Right. Right. I can see how those things all piled on top of each other would make it more and more difficult to really go, hey, something good is happening. Right. And that's just what it is. And it's okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, and that's a good point. I mean, it's like a person might have poor positive affect tolerance partially due to social things like Mm -hmm. misogyny and racism. And if you've had, if you've had to endure a ton of stuff like that that will have an impact on your positive affect tolerance, just like, and and another thing is you might, when you date someone with low positive affect tolerance, a lot of times they won't just sabotage their happiness, they'll sabotage your happiness, like say it's your birthday, and they know that you love, love, love your birthday, and you're just like Tigger on your birthday, you're just like Little Miss Happy Pants, they're not going to be able to tolerate your happiness, so unconsciously they may do something really crappy to ruin your birthday again not like an evil villain but like unconsciously oh it's like you are reading my
1: life again i had a horrible ex that did that every birthday and then it turned into look at you
2: went and ruined your own birthday and i'm like
1: wait a minute you
2: did right it's coupled (laughs) with the gaslighting, right yes right right so yeah so not everybody with poor affect uh positive affect tolerance sabotages other people's happiness it's that's not always a thing but if you have somebody with poor positive affect tolerance that also has traits of narcissism and a little bit of sadism not not the fun kind of sadism but like you know then yeah they they can sabotage and you can see how that would show up in non-monogamy where you have this new lover and you have new relationship energy and if you have a partner that's of that type Mm -hmm. they're going to come in and maybe try and do veto power when it's not appropriate sabotage that relationship etc and so on so we've talked about compassionate self-talk and positive affect tolerance another area that i'd like to talk about is ego states and how that is tied in with self-compassion and all of that so a lot of times if you were to think about ego states if you were to google it the original ego states are other than the three that i'm about to list uh they're similar but slightly different so the three ego states that I see I would call the warrior, the child and the nurturer. So the war the child, if it's still injured, if your inner child is still injured, then you might then that inner child is gonna be the one that holds the pain. Mm-hmm. Right. The warrior is that part of you that takes care of business, the one that kicks ass at your profession, the ones, that, the part of you that wants to charge into non monogamy and not have to deal with any kind of jealousy and just be a badass within non monogamy and, and all of that. The warrior tends to fucking hate the child within uh. the psyche. The warrior has a tendency to think if I could get, if I could just get rid of this fucking kid, then I could be. This badass professionally and within non-monogamy and all of that. So metaphorically, the warrior has a tendency to want to take the injured child and bring it down into the basement, put it in a closet, lock the door with a whole bunch of chains on it, right? (laughs) Yeah. But the problem is that child is still in there. That child is still very sensitive to a lot of the things going on within non-monogamy and it is having a big impact. Now, The third part is the nurturer. Now, with each one of these, like, say, the nurturer, some people have a very developed inner nurturer, and other people have almost like a ghost-like nurturer that's (laughs) hardly on board at all, right? So, with some people, I have to really build their nurturer, and when I say nurturer, I mean the nurturer that nurtures you, (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. not others. <laughs> you know, right now we're just talking about you. So the nurturer is the one that will come between those two. The nurturer is the one that will say to the inner warrior, "Look, I know that you want to do all these things within non-monogamy, but we have to talk to the the child. We have to pay attention to the child." Now again, metaphorically, once you take that child out of the basement closet, Initially, because it's been ignored and some people have been ignoring their inner child literally for decades, like for decades. So when you bring that inner child out of the closet and you say, I, and I do this in therapy, I'll have clients like close their eyes with the EMDR tappers on and imagine sitting down on the bed, looking at their younger self and just saying, I see you. What do you need How are you feeling? And people will just cry. And so it just starts there, right? Just Mm -hmm. saying a few sentences like that. How are you doing? I see you. I'm listening to you. What do you need? And at first, that kid is probably going to throw a tantrum because you've been ignoring them for so long. But just like a real child, if you were to love and hold a child, eventually they come around, right? Right. Right. And the more you listen to that child and give them good boundaries, the more your whole system will do better in your life and within non monogamy. Mm, okay. But I don't know if this makes sense to you, but you know, it's like it you can, the, the warrior wants to be super logical and doesn't want to connect with the whole internal compass, which, as I've told you, to me is your thoughts your emotions, your body sensations, working in tandem from a grounded, centered place. Mm -hmm. The warrior just wants you to stay in your head and don't notice your feelings. Shove down your feelings and your body sensations because they get in the fucking way. Right. Right? Yeah. So, but once you start nurturing that child, the child doesn't disappear when you healed the child. The child becomes like this wonderful muse. Like if you've ever been around a happy three-year-old, they're mm-hmm. completely full of light and joy and creativity and ideas and play. Yeah. That's what happens to your inner child when you heal your inner child. It doesn't disappear. It just turns into this joyful part of yourself. Mhm. So that is a really important part within non-monogamy is not to lock your inner child away. You've got to listen to your inner child. yeah. Yeah.
1: And as I'm listening to all of this, I'm like, wow, this is a lot. (laughs) And this is why we go to therapy. And I think of myself, who is, I regard myself as a pretty emotionally literate and aware person. And it's like, oh, I still got a lot of work to do.
2: (laughs) I am not there.
1: (laughs) I am not there. Um, And then I, I think of the sayings that I have heard ad nauseum my whole life, like you have to learn to love yourself first before you can love another and those sorts of things. And I think that's bullshit, but we'll get there. You're the therapist anyway. But I think about that with this, like can I really cultivate compassion for others if I'm still working on it for me? What's the relationship between those two things? I think it
2: depends. Uh, You know, it's like way back when I worked in hospital clinics before I went into private practice. Of course, anybody in a hospital mental health clinic, clinic, you know, that has to be there a minimum of three days a week. Those are folks that have had really rough lives. Mm -hmm. And I would be shocked. There would be little ladies that had had the worst sexual abuse in their life. Their whole body was riddled with chronic pain. And some of them were the biggest sweetie patooties, you know, would just Mm -hmm. like smile and be so kind. And then there's other people that, and maybe they don't have the most, like a ton of compassion for themselves, but they sure do have a lot of compassion for other people. Mm -hmm. And they give other people hugs and all that. And then you've got other people that have a lot of pain and for whatever reason One thing that I noticed at this one clinic that I worked at when in my second practicum, when I was still in school, I worked at a place that specialized in kids that have been sexually abused. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that some of the kids, they loved the movie Chucky. And if you think about that horror movie, it's the main character, the main villain looks like a child, right? Yeah. And I think there's a certain quadrant of people that have been traumatized That they look at the predator the perpetrator and they think to themselves i don't want to be the victim there's power in taking on the predatory role Mm. you know and they more go down that route so yeah it's like when we have trauma or i guess i'm being a little long-winded but it just depends like everybody is different and Mm -hmm. some people have no compassion for themselves They have all the compassion in the world for others. And in fact, just like what you said, I think there's tons of people that would say the same thing where they would say, it's very easy for me to have compassion for the uh, other people, but I, I don't have compassion for myself. Mm. And I think like people that take on the predator role, they have a tendency to try and take care of themselves and feed their needs and their, but maybe they don't have compassion for other people. So I think everybody's- so it's about is, like
1: compassion equilibrium kind of.
2: I think everybody is different, but yeah. but certainly, so in the, when I talk about self-compassion, I'm really like talking to the folks that know they don't have enough self-compassion. Mm -hmm. And I would really encourage anybody who doesn't feel like they have enough self-compassion to do that work, because not because they won't be able to love other people. I think a lot of times people that don't have self-compassion for themselves, a lot of times they're over givers. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they're doing all kinds of loving things for the people in their life. It's more for some of the things that I've talked about previously, where it's like the amount of joy and love that they can have in their life is going to be put on dim if they don't have any compassion for themselves. Right, right. Yeah, so that expression, you can't love other people until you love yourself, that's very debatable. Yeah. That's debatable. And then just the the last thing is, in terms of self-compassion, is is working on healing your attachment injuries. Mm -hmm. Because in non-monogamy, it inherently pokes at your attachment injuries more than monogamy does. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there's all these people... Or at least one other person involved and if you still have a lot of unresolved attachment injuries then they can get poked they can get triggered and that's just going to make your non-monogamous journey more difficult
1: you know? right 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 and i just want to slide in and say for those listening along if you if you're skipping ahead and you didn't listen to the last episode we get into attachment styles and and all of that stuff so go listen okay
2: <laughs> am yes. I the
1: nurturer right now? Am I being the audience nurturer? Is that
2: what I am? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Like, letting people know about the other episodes. Let's see. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like we can go to the second area, which is compassion for others. Mm hmm. And you'd be surprised. There's all these different things that get in the way of having compassion for others. I think in the book, I list something like 15 different things. Right. And if you don't have compassion for your partners, there's, it becomes this huge block to being successful within non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. So we don't have time to go over everything. So I just have to pick a few. Mm-hmm. And that's a
1: teaser for the book. If you want to know it all, get the book.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard because they're all, the ones that are listed, they're all super important. You know, it's all really important. But I would say one of, one, that people have a tendency, people have a tendency to lose compassion when they have compassion fatigue. That's, that's one of the things. So a lot of times a partner will launch in asking for something within non-monogamy but if your emotional gas tank is at a two because you've had a whole bunch of stress during the day, mm-hmm. you're probably going to, like, cut them off or not listen or get snarky with them. So I always try and teach couples that come in because everybody comes in either as an individual or a couple. I never have triads or quads coming in regardless of what's going on at home. Mm-hmm. I'll always encourage them to ask where is your emotional gas tank right now or to say this is where my emotional gas tank is before they launch into a hard discussion about their non-monogamous relationship
1: yeah and i see that becoming a part of the culture a little bit more like people asking anyone whether it's a friend that you want to you know lay something serious on like Before you start that conversation, just be like, hey, do you have the bandwidth for this right now? It's kind of a heavy conversation. So I'm so happy to see that that's becoming part of our interpersonal etiquette, no matter what the relationship type. So keep it up, people. It's great.
2: Yeah. Such a game changer. Mm -hmm. Another thing I see people doing a lot of times is they catastrophize. One person says something they're nervous about, like, I'm a little bit scared to go to the play party or... I don't know if I'm ready for you to take on another lover or whatever it is that they're a little bit scared of. And the other person goes, has this huge reaction, like, see, how are you going to be non-monogamous? You're not even, you're you're just doing this for me. You're not even, I don't even believe you are non-monogamous. This is never going to work. I don't even know why we're trying. This is just going to be horrible. Why are we even doing this? This is going to ruin our relationship. You know, they go off on this huge thing. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, if this is happening in my office, you're watching the f- person that tried to say what they were scared about just crumble. You just watch their shoulders slump and they look down at their feet. You just, it's such a drastic visual. Mm-hmm. And the person that's catastrophizing may have different reasons for doing that. They may a lot of times when we catastrophize it's like if we go to the worst case scenario in our head then it's almost like we're preparing for that you know and so if that happens we've already gone there in our head and so at least we're prepared that kind of thing again this is all subconscious stuff or some people might be being a bit unconsciously manipulative because of exactly what happens right as soon as you skyrocket with all this worst case scenario it silences the other person and that can make you feel like you've won but really you have not you have not won in the long run because all that's happening is they are falling into a place of helplessness and hopelessness and thinking that you can't handle their feelings Mm -hmm. and all this stuff mounts up so if you can have compassion for your partner and not catastrophize and stay grounded and move through a discussion about their feelings in the long run, you're going to have a much happier non-monogamous relationship. Right, right. So that's a, a second one that I'd talk about. Another one I, I'd say is, uh, you know, delaying asserting yourself until you explode. This happens all the time. Something might happen where you're a little bit annoyed. Maybe your your partner's texting all the time while you're on a special date with them. They're texting their other lover while you're on a special date with them, and you're like, low grade pissed off it's like isn't this supposed to be our special night but then you don't want to ruin the night entirely so you don't say anything or you know there's always a reason i'm not going to say anything now because it's not that big of a deal
1: what about like the tangled web you're not going to say anything now
2: because your partner catastrophizes like, <laughs> it's just a big tangled web of <laughs> right which is actually more accurate a lot of yeah. times there is like several many different things going on yeah. You know, like you might also have a partner that struggles with depression and you don't want to make it worse. Like there's all, yeah, it gets super tangled, mm-hmm. but we're like isolating these things just to, to make it a little bit more simple. But, you know, I always encourage people like say what you're upset about when you're upset is like at a four, if you're always shoving it under the rug, then over time, you're going to your partner's going to trip over that rug and the room is going to be on fire. It's like you need to like say what's going on with you when it's smaller and more manageable. And again, if you do that, you're going to be able to have more compassion for your partner. If you wait until you explode, there's not going to be any compassion for your partner there. It's yeah. just going to be angry and nasty. Mhm. So that that's another one. Another one that I see is that people have a tendency to think if I give they have a tendency to look at love like like to again like two lawyers like somebody's gonna win right and so if they give they fear that if they give compassion that that will make them vulnerable and that their partner will use that in order to get their needs met. Without, and, 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 sac- and they will end up sacrificing their own needs, you know, that by showing compassion that they will end up sacrificing their needs because their partner will take advantage of that vulnerability. And that happens all the time. You know, when that's going on, because usually when that's going on, both people fear that simultaneously. And so I have to get them both to agree, like make a pact that they're going to do a compassion reboot and they're going to quit lawyering up. Yes. and I gonna, actually
1: yeah. felt that in relationships where it's like, okay, you know, you go through the cycle like, all right, I'll give a little and and try. And then the other person doesn't try. And then you're like, oh, I got burned. And then maybe they do it. But you don't. And I almost feel like it's like, okay, we're going to do it now. Like at the same
2: time. Okay. One, two, three, go. We're both compassionate <laughs> at the same time. Like, <laughs> Right. It takes a lot of emotional intelligence and a lot of yeah. kindness to be like, I am going to stop this. It's not working. Yeah, people can do it. I've watched people decide that they're just going to change and agree to change together, and I've watched them do it. So it's possible. It's for mm-hmm. sure possible. Uh, you just have to truly want love right. rather than war. And our whole society—I mean, Game of Thrones—like everything is always war-focused, and like relationships are war and stuff. So you really have to step away from what we've been taught and lean into becoming wired for love. Right, right. You know, I feel as
1: you're going through these and, and again, I'm applying it completely to my own life. Thanks for the free therapy session, Kate. <laughs> I feel like when I'm hearing you talk about these examples that the the kryptonite in a lot of these scenarios is resentment. How how much does does resentment play a part in some of these things? Or like, is that the first thing we have to learn to kind of squash and let go? Because there's so much resentment between partners.
2: I know. And I think on a side note, a lot of times when couples aren't having sex with each other in a long term relationship, I think a lot of times it is built up resentment and and a growing disrespect for each other. It's like nobody Mm -hmm. wants to fuck someone that they resent. No one wants to have sex with someone that doesn't respect them or someone they don't respect. You know, there's all these things, you know. right But when it comes to this topic, yeah, if you have a whole bunch of resentment, yeah, you can get to a place where you have very little compassion for your partner. John Gottman talks about this and he, he says like the the one thing that is most likely to destroy a relationship is contempt, which I think is just a more escalated version of resentment, right? Right. Or it could be arguably so. And yeah. so if you have contempt for your partner, if you have all this resentment, then especially if you've gotten to the place of contempt, if you're at, that's like solidified, hardened is concrete resentment, right? Yeah. And just like, it also
1: goes with your lawyer analogy perfectly. Contempt of court,
2: Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, you know, I think resentment is just a few steps before you get to contempt, you know, it's just like you have all this resentment. It's like, if you're in resentment, you've probably gotten to a point where you don't feel that saying even what you need matters, that your partner's not going to give you any kind of compassion and it goes back to what I said before where so often there's two people that are screaming for compassion and not giving it to each other yeah and I think it it just it's like if you're in resentment then you probably just don't even think your partner is capable of compassion and so as soon as you hit that place then usually people are not giving it either
1: yeah and and I had a thought that's kind of like a, a side note but this makes me think about what I've seen like my own personal anecdotal experience by being in sex positive communities and non-monogamous communities is there's always that one couple that comes around every once in a while that like they are at that place in their relationship, their marriage, whatever. They're at that resentment content place. And they're like, it's kind of like a baby will fix everything. They're like non-monogamy will fix everything. <laughs> is that just like kind of a, I don't know, one of those things reoccurring red flags that I see in my own personal circle or is that like a thing that happens sometimes
2: yeah I mean certainly I I run into that sometimes you know where people are in trouble in their relationship and then they think non-monogamy is going to be the fix I think it depends like if you like say you're dating someone and You know, it's the beginning of the relationship and actually things are pretty good and you have conversations and you're like, geez, both of us before and in previous relationships have always cheated. I wonder if non-monogamy would be better for us. Maybe we wouldn't cheat if we were non-monogamous. I've seen that situation where nobody's hurting anybody yet, but they've looked at their past history and they're they're like, maybe non-monogamy will help us be more loving to each other given the way we're wired
1: proactive consensual non-monogamy I love it get the t-shirts print the t shirts
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I've seen that work but but if you're already hurting each other left right and center and now you're trying to be non-monogamous the only thing I mean usually that doesn't work out the only if your goal is to stay together the one thing that I can say about that is maybe unconsciously that's not your goal maybe unconsciously you know that you're about to break up in that case sometimes if unconsciously you both know that you're about to break up and now you have other lovers and you're dating other people it can actually in some way it for the individual now they have someone else they have some kind of support already lined up as they go through the divorce process and sometimes that's a little easier than going through a divorce by yourself entirely.
1: Right, right.
2: So I think subconsciously sometimes people create non monogamous relationships not thinking again, so this is all subconscious, not thinking that it's gonna save the relationship, but that it might be easier on them. For the out. For the out. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But again, I don't think anyone would admit to this. <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> I don't think, we, we've all seen those couples come and go in,
2: in different communities. And, you know, it's right. Like, mm. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll have to admit, you know, it's like I've had an 11-year relationship and a 13-year relationship. And the fact that both uh, that both myself and my husband at the time, we both had lovers, mm-hmm. uh, people that really loved us, that did make breaking up easier. Right. Than if we had both just had each other and that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, the, these are a few. There's even more. But if everybody just buys my book, they'll find out about the other ones. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm like, come on, Kate. Sell it,
1: Kate. Close it, Kate. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, I mean, you know, with my book, as you know, because you've read my book, it mm-hmm. talks about a bazillion things. And this yeah. is just one section of what my book talks about. But a lot of the things, there's some great books that are out there on, on non-monogamy, but they mm-hmm. don't really go deep enough. And so I really tried with my book to tackle all the things that come up in my private practice all the time. And I tried to create a book that doesn't pull any punches and really tackles all the hard stuff. So it, right. I had one gal that's a therapist right, read my book and she's like, and and she's a, a therapist that works with, you know, drug addiction and stuff. And she's like, mm-hmm. you, you've created a, a harm reduction manual. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's pretty much the... Uh, Part of the intent. There's other intents, but yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I I
1: hadn't thought about it that way, but
2: absolutely.
1: And I will say it and say it and say it. This book is what we've needed. It's it's all, like you said, all the hard relationship things that apply to relationships, non-monogamous, monogamous, monogamous, you know, it doesn't matter. But then in the complex setting of non-monogamy that has its own unique problems... It's all explained, which is appreciated. So, <laughs> thank you, thank you,
2: thank you, thank you. And and we're gonna have at least I think uh, you know three more episodes yeah. that we talk about non monogamy before we move on to something else and uh, continue Yay. to kind of unpack a few more things that are in the book. Yes, yes. So
1: stick with us, y'all. And I'll I'll be I'll be your like co sale person. Go buy the book. No, really, seriously. <laughs> but Until next episode, where we're going to get more into this fascinating stuff, hit that subscribe button so you know that you won't miss it. And until then, we will see you soon, where we once again dare to open deeply.
0: Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes, and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrell.